the fact that you think about these things, whereas headquarters, thinking about your leadership team being distributed, thinking about how to have the most intentional culture, just the fact that you're thinking about those things and these are the things that you care about, that's a big part of the likelihood for success. You're listening to Culture Champions, a podcast about what it takes to cultivate exemplary work cultures and master sustainable business growth. In each episode, host Zain Hassan sits down with business leaders and experts to bring you in-depth conversations on maximizing value and success in all aspects of your company. Greg, I really appreciate you coming in and taking the time to join us on this podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Very excited. It's an absolute pleasure. I think if you don't mind just for our audience, it'd be great if you could give us a 60 second overview of your background. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. My background is a bit unique because I've done work in multiple industries, which has been really satisfying to learn in so many different areas. So beginning of my career was in retail and apparel. And then after going back to business school, I worked on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs for some time, which was an amazing learning experience. And then after that, I became an entrepreneur and started multiple companies, uh, four companies. The company we'll talk about today primarily is Culture IQ and the data and the stories that came out of that experience. And the other thing that I'm very proud of is I just finished my 10th year teaching at NYU Stern, and I teach a class called the Entrepreneur Launchpad. And the reason I'm so excited about that is as we get further along in our careers, to be able to help hopefully teach and inspire the next generation of leaders and business owners. To me, that's very exciting because there are a handful of mentors and leaders that helped shape my career and shape me. So to be able to pay that forward has been great. So that's a bit of my background. My family and I live in Florida for part of the year and New Jersey part of the year. I grew up in New Jersey and spent most of my career in New York City, but I have two wonderful daughters that are now in college. So I have the opportunity to spend half my time in Florida and my wife and I spend our other half of our time at the beach in New Jersey. And another thing is that you have an amazing book, which was unbelievably helpful for me called The Culture Quotient. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So The Culture Quotient, 10 dimensions of a high performance culture or high performance company, they're sort of synonymous. This book was my first book. I've written a book since, but it's my only business book. And I mentioned earlier that I spent time building a company called Culture IQ and Culture IQ, we had an amazing experience to be able to work with over a thousand companies that used our framework. Our framework was to help really measure and understand an organization's culture. And then of course, taking that data and looking for action steps. What can you do to align your culture and your strategy to help make sure you have a high performance company, a high performance culture, a high performance team. And the data we collected from a thousand companies, you can imagine how informative that could be, but data alone is not helpful. Data, really, you need to interpret it. You need to determine which parts of this data can really impact an organization and just the learnings that come out of it. So the book is really three components. So one is breaking culture into 10 dimensions so that you can really have succinct and distinctive framework to really understand different parts of your organization. So it really describes these 10 dimensions. Secondly, it takes data to really show, because culture has often been thought of as a soft topic. And so to have data and culture combined 
to really show the impact of culture is really important. So we have the framework, we have the data to support it. And then thirdly, maybe most importantly, some culture stories, how organizations have transformed their culture to accomplish their business goals. And we have 50 or 60 stories that are contributed to the book. Some are a few paragraphs and some are a few pages. And that really helps bring it home, right? Having examples from organizations. So the book isn't purely academic. It's not purely data and it's not purely stories. It's a combination of all. And I think the combination is very powerful. It's an amazing book that helps dramatically for anyone that's really trying to understand how do you effectively measure, right? And look at whether or not you have in a high performing business. And one of the questions I have is in different circumstances, because it's, if you walk into a firm that does really grew it highly through mergers and acquisitions, when that culture IQ is more, you're actually taking the data from that and you're able to help people figure out what they need to do to turn around a culture from the top down, or did you find people can essentially change the CEO can change who they are and then change the culture? Well, there's a few questions in there and a lot of important points. So yes, the answers to, I guess, all the questions, you know, sometimes culture is dramatically impacted through mergers and acquisitions. As a matter of fact, Culture IQ, which I founded and was CEO, we merged with another culture organization. And then our two companies, after combining, merged with a third. So we not only had our Culture IQ methodology been used by a thousand organizations, we had our own culture transformation to accomplish. So we hopefully learned from all of our experience, but it's still never perfect, right? Because when yeah. you take three different cultures and combine them within 24 months, it's really challenging because culture change is not easy, but sometimes very necessary. So the answers to your question, yes, mergers and acquisitions, really understanding the three cultures in our example, how they differed, how they were the same. And then instead of trying to pick one, trying to find what is the correct culture for going forward for an organization that's larger, that has more geographic diversity, that has more employee diversity, that has more diversity of clients, small, medium, large clients and clients all over the world. So we had to really reevaluate the culture before the mergers and acquisitions and after. It's a lot of work, but it's important work. With regard to the CEO, or in this case, there's multiple CEOs and in the combined organization, maybe people have taken different leadership roles, but often there's one CEO. And as it would make sense intuitively, leadership is modeled. So there are typically many, many managers. I think the average number is one manager for every seven employees. So if you have 700 employees, you probably have a hundred managers. Now, of course, you can have a more flat organization and maybe it's 30 managers or 50 or maybe more managers. But my point is management will model the CEO's behavior. If the CEO makes it emphatic that to really have an intentional culture, to really curate the culture and try to use culture as a part of their leadership strategy, then that will clearly trickle down and people will model that behavior. And things like the CEO's type of communication, the type of policies responding to for recruiting and retention, all that is modeled behavior. So yes, the CEO is an outsized influence on the culture, whether it's the day-to-day -day culture or transforming the culture. I appreciate that there's so much depth to the topic of culture and just what you just went through and described. 
I think a big part of what you described, modeling and really leading by example, does set the tone, right? The CEO ends up setting the pace and gleaning from what you described about knowing that you're teaching young entrepreneurs, knowing when we went through COVID, did your work at Culture IQ change because of COVID and sort of the virtual environment? COVID hit about six weeks after I moved up to the board of directors. So I was no longer CEO. I left the CEO role January 1st, 2020. And of course, COVID started to have a dramatic impact on companies about eight weeks later, right, as we reached March from an ownership and a board role, COVID had a dramatic impact. The most obvious is the immediate impact of having 5% of employees typically working remotely or working from home. Statistically, up until COVID, 5% of employees worked from home. And when COVID hit, 95% of employees worked from home. I think the number's somewhere around 50% right now in the high 40s. So a lot of people have gone back to an office, but a lot of people have not. So I think that was the most immediate and dramatic impact. There had been a trend over the 20 prior years, that number of 5% grew from 3%. So 3% to 5% was clearly a trend to give this current generation of workers more flexibility for where they work, how they work, when they work. But the future of work, which was coming, happened pretty much overnight once COVID hit. So that was the most obvious and immediate impact. But it also had companies have to rethink, where is headquarters? What does headquarters mean? How do you define a headquarters? A lot of organizations became virtual and remain virtual. A lot of organizations moved from having many offices to having maybe one office. And a lot of organizations set up hoteling or virtual offices where people could have a place to go and collaborate, but not necessarily have a major headquarter office. So that was the most immediate and dramatic impact. The sad thing about having, besides all the problems that COVID for families and for individuals with regard to work, it happened so quickly that many organizations didn't have plans to support employees at home. They didn't have these contingency plans set up. No one ever imagined that they'd have to overnight have 100% of their employees work remotely. So it did put a lot of pressure on culture because organizations didn't necessarily have great infrastructure set up to accomplish all the goals they needed to accomplish in a virtual environment. I think many leaders were surprised how much they could get done remotely. And that's why many organizations haven't gone back to their traditional model where 95% of employees work in an office. But the sad part was also that culture, because a lot of HR and leadership individuals were struggling to keep up with such an immediate and rapid change, there was so much focus on having potential furloughs, on closing offices, making sure employees were safe, making sure people, employees could work remotely, that a lot of the analysis and culture steps and culture transformation was pushed out a bit. Right? It was delayed. Not every company, but because culture became even more important when your company's changing so dramatically. But when you're struggling to determine where people will work, how they can work safely, how business can continue, culture, of course, is critically important, but the sustainability and the survival of the organization has to come first. There were a lot of companies that needed to postpone some of the culture work they were doing, postpone some of the culture work they were about to start, and postpone the re-engagement for some of that culture work. It's just a fact. It was a very unique and challenging time for everyone. So culture became more and more important, but in some cases, 
that intentional work got pushed back a bit. Yeah, I would say, I mean, everything you just described, where the key things that is, um, what is headquarters, right? Essentially, we're formed through all mergers and acquisitions. My executive team is all in different locations. So we've been talking recently just about the concept of where headquarters would be and what that means, thinking about being in South Florida, knowing we've got our executive team spread out between Puerto Rico, Chicago, and New York. No one's even in the same location. What we have, what we've done is we've got essentially firms and insurance agencies that we have partnered with. That's the Renanco I use for acquisitions, but we partnered with that are in, so we have our different offices, but they're not part of our headquarters. And we're trying to think of how do we make sure we build an intentional culture knowing that our executive team is spread completely virtually. And the thing is like, what do we need to be very intentional about? Because we want to make sure that every part of our culture is very intentional. Because in my world, we want people to run to our organization. The experience that they have is amazing and they want to run to us. And to do that requires being very intentional. But candidly, it's a significant challenge. And when I think about a lot about what am I doing each day to make sure I'm I'm leading by example, but more importantly, like the things that I don't even know I'm not doing. The advice that you give to entrepreneurs in today's environment, how do you kind of sum that up in terms of the key items that you think are the most important for them to focus on if they are building a virtual organization? First though, just to point out the fact that you think about these things where is headquarters, thinking about your leadership team being distributed, thinking about how to have the most intentional culture, just the fact that you're thinking about those things and these are the things that you care about, that's a big part of the likelihood for success, right? Because some organizations, they let culture happen as opposed to being intentional and trying to accomplish the best culture possible given their organizational structure. You've thought about your structure, You've thought about your goals, thought about your potential challenges if you consider remote or distributed leadership to be a challenge. So just the fact that you're thinking about those things, I think you're already kind of a step in the right direction. That really kind of caught my attention the way you described it. And it sounds like one of those things that I would say it keeps you up at night, but the fact that you're thinking about it, that's really, really important. The 10 dimensions that I describe in my book, the framework, 10 dimensions of a high performance culture. Communication is often the lowest score when we use data to determine how the performance of an organization with regard to these dimensions. But it's also, I think, the easiest to transform and improve, right? And when I say communication, it's not just communication amongst your leadership team, but the communication up and the communication down. Leaders probably would find the time and have your one-on-ones and have your group meetings and plan your strategy. And most organizations do so regardless if people are sitting in the same office or not. As a matter of fact, many mid-sized and large organizations will have leadership distributed all over the world because they have large, sprawling, internationally diverse businesses. Where companies often fall short, which can be improved, is the communication down. When I say down, sort of just thinking in the pyramid, you have your leadership and then your management, and then you have your individual contributors. And being able to communicate the strategy that you and your team have, it sounds so obvious, but so many organizations don't actually take the extra steps to make sure that that message is pounded in over and over again. Not just said once, like here's our strategy for the year, but reiterating, your strategy, reiterating what's important to your organization, reiterating the goals, 
going back, accountability to make sure those goals are being accomplished, communicating what's been accomplished, communicating what hasn't been accomplished, communicating how people are performing, communicating how people that are being recruited should perform. And so that communication is sort of the trickling from the very top of the pyramid down to all the individual contributors. But then the other part that's often missing that is easy to implement is from how people communicate back up to leadership. Because especially today when there are so many mediums of communication, right, between social media, between intranets, internal, whether it's Slack or Microsoft Teams or email or phone or texting, however people communicate or just leaning over and talking to the person next to you, which seems to be less and less the case these days. So having the employees really understand how they communicate back up to their manager and to the rest of the organization. Some managers are excellent at communication. Some come to mind when I say that, and some are not. So sometimes part of training in an organization is really making sure that management understands not just how to communicate, but how to make sure their channel set up for their direct reports to communicate up. It can be as simple as a weekly one-on-one, assuming that it's an interactive conversation that accomplishes both the channels of communication. So regardless of where your team is just summarized or regardless of where your team is located, I'm assuming from knowing you a bit that you're having a wonderfully collaborative executive team planning sessions and communication, making sure that all your managers are training to properly communicate to their direct reports and make sure direct reports understand how they're communicating back up through management and the organization. Well, I think we always do a better job because so much of our growth is through acquisitions. So when we're looking at firms, a big part of it is like the firms that join us, they join for the community feeling because we allow them to operate our models decentralized. So they're joining, but they're already a high performing firm, but they have their own culture today, right? So like before, and there's some key, what I'll call go, no go questions early on in the process that allow us to determine whether or not they're going to fit in our overall community culture. What they've done is made them successful. And for us to decide we want to move forward, we're going to look at the retention of their teams. We want to see that the hallmarks of what we call servant leadership to us, that's really important. I view my role as CEO as actually the bottom of the pyramid. Although I understand typically it's the top of the pyramid, I'm here to serve. And so it's, am I serving our partners and am I serving our colleagues and our communities? And then are we serving? And those are the questions. So when I think about that question, a lot of it is knowing I'm trying to respect certain level of boundaries where like we'll allow the partners to run their business the way they have, but we are expecting a performance because with that is also an expectation of communication, but that concept of and the expecting communication is a lot easier to be done from corporate than it is for me to know whether or not they're doing a great job because the pace of honestly of deals can be pretty quick. So checking in on that is something where think about that very frequently, like, okay, what can we do? And maybe talking more about culture IQ to actually figure out how we implement that internally, because we don't have a way in my mind to look at the data. The level of confidence is not high enough that it's not part of our actual in post merger integration strategy to say, let's make sure that there's a way for our individual producers to communicate up or to make sure that, because we want to know what the end of the day, what's going on in the field. And if there is a leader that somehow slips through, 
I think we've been fortunate so far that hasn't happened, but I know that based on the number of acquisitions we will complete, there will be some marriages that don't work out. And so it's just trying to figure out, okay, you know, what we can do and what we can think of in terms of how do we implement the ability to ensure that we really get to understand some of the acquisition processes can be quite transactional to ensure that we know what the leadership team is about before we bring them on. I guess the question is, based on the vast amount of experience you've seen, are there any best practices specific to M&A that would enable someone to really assess the culture of the team? Well, yes, I can just give some examples that I've found to be helpful. So with regard to mergers and acquisitions, before the merger occurs, I often see organizations, whether it's a private equity firm, whether it's the acquiring company, evaluating the company that's being acquired, doing whether it's DISC or some of the personality analysis, driver analysis for leaders in the organizations. And just to see where people's strengths are and where there might be some blind spots. And it's fascinating. And hopefully your team has already also done that analysis because when you put it all together, personally, we've done this in some organizations where I've been a leader, where we literally evaluate the entire leadership team and find there might be one or two gaping holes where we're missing a management team skill, not even the person, the skill, right? Because it's really the skills. And so pre-merger, I think it's very important to really uh, evaluate the skill sets, the interests of the leaders, not if they're great leaders, if they're poor leaders, hopefully you're acquiring the company you're going to determine they're very effective, but really understanding what tools they have, what skills they have, what interests they have that make them effective and is a complementary to your own team. So I think that's really important. The other, I'd say post-merger, we did culture analysis. We would do confidential culture assessment where employees would provide feedback. And when you're doing mergers and acquisitions, in my experience, it's even more important to really understand the baseline. What are the discrete cultures for the two organizations that are merging? And then post-merger, I think it's very important to have a baseline for both organizations. And as I mentioned earlier, from my experience with my own organization, where we had, we were one company and became a combination of three companies, really understanding each culture and then determining what is the best resulting culture, the goal that you're aiming toward. What's the gap analysis between the culture you'd like to accomplish and the culture you currently have. And then thirdly, what I found very important as a leader who was leading a merger of organizations was, especially if you're doing merger after merger, like your organization, is finding out how did people experience that merger? How did they find the communication? Did they have the tools? Did they understand what they're doing? Anytime there's change, often employees will have some concern in the absence of information, and I have even more concern. So if you have certain goals and a checklist for your merger, that can be one of them. Really getting feedback from the people in the organization you've acquired to determine the things you were hoping to accomplish and hoping to have the team that's joining you hit the ground running, did they feel they had everything to hit the ground running? Did they feel they had all the tools, the, all the information? And was it a seamless process or was it clumsy? Because we could always learn from our mistakes. So I think that's the third part is really evaluating the actual merger process itself. To summarize, there's really three parts in my experience. One is, is really understanding the leadership team's 
skills and interests so that you make sure you have complementary skills and have all the skills necessary for your organization to be as high performance as you struck to be. Secondly, is to really get the baseline of the two different cultures that are merging and then determining what are the new goals for this organization and does the current culture fit that or do you need to have some gap analysis where you're striving to hit a new culture? And then thirdly, the merger itself. How did you perform? How did the employees experience that? Were they able to hit the ground running? Did they have all the tools necessary? Did they have all the information necessary? Was it a positive experience or was it a terrifying experience? And just learning from that for your next merger. I think that's really, really good feedback to all way to be going, right? It's a continuous process so that you can continuously evolve and improve the process and hear what people experienced as they went through it. I think especially hearing from all different like levels of the organizations to understand what they heard and versus what we thought we were saying and what we thought the onboarding experience was like. So is there a specific tool or Myers-Briggs or a predictive index that you found to be the most effective? Well, you mentioned a couple. There's the Hogan assessment, there's DISC. I don't have a strong opinion which one is best. My strong opinion is pick one and use it, right? Because again, I'm sure that some are better than others in certain circumstances. I'm not expert enough. I've been a participant in those programs and I found them very helpful. And we ended up having a private equity sponsor, a private equity firm that owned the majority of Culture IQ. And I found their process to be impressive, right? How structured they were in their mergers and their acquisitions. And they performed this process. I was being assessed for my skills, my interests, my leadership style. So was the rest of the team. And then we ended up merging with another company, which it was really fascinating to see where we had all the boxes checked and where we had some gaps. And in a prior company, we did the same thing and it was eliminating Ben as well. So I think just having a systematic process where you can evaluate that regardless of which tool you use. Same thing with culture. There are multiple culture tools. There are multiple culture frameworks. And just make sure you commit to use one. And hopefully you pick one that's great for your organization. We're private equity back as well. And whatever we end up implementing is more than likely going to be what they choose to implement because it wasn't something that the intentionality you described that you saw and you were impressed with the private equity firm. In my experience, that's a rare thing for private equity firms. I mean, it's growing, but it's a rare thing for private equity firms to really have implemented into their investment process. As you went from in your own business and you were going through that experience of merging and seeing the process that they went through, how did that correlation to the difference what I'll call the academic work you've done and the consulting work you've done play out in terms of your applying in your own business, the learning experience of having to go through it yourself, what are their differences versus what it's like to consult? It was a live case study, but my own company going through that process. And just to the first thing you said with regard to private equity firms, not necessarily having that process. I think more and more private equity firms today do. A lot of private equity firms have operating partners now in addition to investment partners and the operating partner and the operating team their role is to have the best outcomes, use some of these types of tools. So it's become more and more prevalent. And I think it's a good thing. With regard to our own experience, it's like a doctor. Does a doctor follow their own advice, take their own medicine? And it is different when it's yourself because then you have emotions and you have 
anxieties of all the moving parts of your business and all the employees and all of the recruiting and retention. So yes, I mean, I would say that we are not immune to having some of the same challenges that are a thousand companies that use our framework. We were measuring everything, all the things that I'm recommending. We did all these things. We did the analysis of leadership. We did a baseline culture analysis. We put together a new set of culture goals. We even put together new values that we thought were more appropriate for the combined organization, where the original values from my organization versus the organization that we merged with, just putting them together didn't necessarily make sense. And then we went on a tour and visiting offices and talking to employees and trying to make sure that we were communicating and make sure that people didn't have anxiety. But you don't think of everything. So like any merger, we had our own challenges. And some of them were operational, some of them were human resources, some of them were recruiting, some of them were retention. And it's not an easy process and it's not a quick process. Right? The integration of two organizations, even smaller organizations the size of my company, it's a necessary process to accomplish the goals, but it's not an easy process. Well said. And in terms of what you are doing now, you know, what's next for Greg? Yes. Uh, yeah, thanks for asking. So when I started Culture IQ in 2013, 10 years ago, culture was always very important to me. I had implemented a lot of culture programs. I was one of the owners of Zappos, which was famous for its culture. And that really inspired me to implement a lot of culture programs in the organizations that I was running. I wasn't running Zappos. I was an investor and a consultant there, but I learned so much being part of that. So I started implementing dozens of culture programs in my organization that I was managing at the time. 10 years ago, I decided that instead of culture being part of my leadership style, I would make culture my vocation. I would make it my next business, my company. And I started Culture IQ. And I sold the business a few years ago and I still own part of the company and culture is still very important to me. But because I don't run that business day to day, a lot of the pleasure I get is talking to organizations and leaders like you. I have a chance to do some public speaking with my culture book, The Culture Potient. I have a chance to be on some boards, boards of directors, which I enjoy very much, you know, sharing my experience and especially around culture. So I continue to do that, even though I'm not running Culture IQ day to day, I continue to do culture work, whether it's public speaking or writing or consulting or advising. The second thing that I enjoy very much is teaching. I mentioned that for the past 10 years, I've also been a teacher at Stern Business School at NYU and teaching business. And specifically, I focus a lot on entrepreneurship. And that's been very, very satisfying. And I'll continue to do that hopefully for the next 10 years. And then thirdly, I am an entrepreneur. I've started, I mentioned four companies. I recently started, three years ago, started a business called Sunflow, which is completely different than Culture IQ, although we do focus on having the best culture possible so we can accomplish our goals. But Sunflow is a premium beach chair and accessory company, an e-commerce company. My wife is a product and fashion designer, and she invented a very innovative, unique beach chair and accessory collection that's very beautiful, very functional, very modern. And so she's the product and design and creative. And I commercialize it on the business side. I'm the CEO of the organization. And that's been fun. Every time I'm running a company, I use it as a live case study for my teaching. So to be able to go into Stern Business School and talk about different parts of entrepreneurship, but then show the business plan, show my 
decisions I've made, show the data, talk about some of the hard decisions I'm contemplating. It really allows me to be a better teacher. And obviously I enjoy creating a business. To me, building something from an idea is wonderful. And recently we were on Shark Tank, which the students were very excited that their professor was on Shark Tank on television. And as a matter of fact, when it aired last semester, we had Shark Tank playing on one screen in the classroom and we had our e-commerce live analytics on a box next to it. So we could see exactly what would happen when we started talking about our product and what happened with the users that are joining our website and sales that are happening. So it truly is a live, an opportunity for a, a live case study. And so that's been fun. So that's what I've been working on. I continue to be on some boards and do writing and public speaking around culture. I have the chance to teach the next generation of leaders at NYU Stern Business School. And I've started my fourth company, which has been a lot of fun. Hopefully as you get further along in your career, you learn from your prior experience and hopefully my business, each business is better than the past business. What a remarkable story. And that's, have you and your wife ever worked together in a prior business or is this the first one that you guys are working together in? We have worked together before. So about 15 years ago, my wife and I started handbags and accessories business. And similar to my current company, Sunflow, my wife is creative. She designed some beautiful products and accessories, and I helped commercialize those products around the world. And the wonderful thing about working with my wife, besides the fact that we trust each other so much, is that we have very different skills and interests. She's creative. She's a designer. She does product development. And, and I do everything else for it. I do the commercialization, I do the business, the sales, the marketing, the legal, the HR, the culture. So together we're a very complimentary team. And so this is the second time we're working together, but the, bringing it back to culture, this second time we've worked from home. So it's a virtual company we have employees and consultants around the world. We use factories around the world and we distribute to customers around the world, but we do it all from our home. At this stage in our career, in our lives, we have full work-life integration. As a matter of fact, we started this business, this current company, Sunflow, during COVID. We launched it in March of 2020. And both of our daughters, now in college, they were still in high school and they were home. So full work-life integration. We started a business at home. We had our family at home. And even our children who were old enough to really witness us as entrepreneurs, because the prior company that my wife and I had, the children were too young to really appreciate it. Now that they're young adults, they were able to see it front and center because we were working from the living room, from the dining room, from home offices. So it's really been an amazing experience. And bringing it back to culture, we truly have today work-life integration. So thanks for asking, and I'm very excited for this next stage in my career. That's amazing. I'm just hearing what you just described and then the, the partnership that sounds like you and your wife have and the skill set that you've learned along the way is obviously it's invaluable, right? Applicable to any business. The fact that you can bring that level of experience and building culture, not just out of just pure interest, just to hearing about the stage of life that your daughters are in. Do you feel like there's a potential for them and wanting to join the business? Well, it's funny you asked that. So when we started the company during COVID, we had funded it ourselves during the research and development. We started commercializing the business March of 2020. So that's when we launched live. That's when the website was available. But leading up to that for the first two years, 
my wife was developing the products. We're getting our patents and our trademarks and building out the website and all the beautiful creative assets. And one of our daughters was sitting on an investor meeting. We actually started talking to investors as we prepared to commercialize because we were going to be buying inventory and investing money in marketing. And my daughter at the time was 15 years old and asked if she could sit in on this investor meeting. At the end of the meeting, she asked if she could invest 1000 of her $4,000 that she had saved from birthdays and babysitting, if she can invest in the business. So she became our first investor with $1,000 investment. And she's now at University of Miami Herbert Business School. So she clearly has an interest and a mind for business. Hopefully her investment will be a successful investment in Sunflow. So that was the most recent company, Sunflow. And my other daughter is a dance major, so she's less interested in sitting in investor meetings, but she creates a wonderful, positive environment. She's very high EQ, very in tune with how people feel, a lot of things that make for a great leader with regard to culture. I look forward to being able to have further conversations with you when you're down in South Florida, just in the hearing about it, because for me, it's every day is about being a better leader, being a better spouse, being a better parent and being mindful about looking at those three. It sounds like I could learn a lot from you and your experiences that says a lot about you, the model that you and your wife set for your daughter to have decided she wanted to invest just from hearing at 15, from hearing the story and hearing you pitch to investors. So this has been an amazing interview. I really, really appreciate it. I think our audience will get a lot of value out of this. So I really appreciate your time. I guess just for future reference, if anybody wants to reach out to you, what would be the best way for people to reach out? I'm sure. So on LinkedIn is always easy. My name is Greg Besner, the B, B-E-S-N-E-R. You can reach me at my email, which is greg.besner at gmail.com. And I'm very responsive. However you reach out, I will respond. And by the way, thank you, Zane, for the really nice words Obviously, I'm your guest today, and I've been asked a lot of questions. I want to point out to your listeners that I'm really impressed with what you've built, and thank you for all the compliments about my experience, but you have your own unique experiences, and it's built a what I can tell is a very wonderful company, and very thoughtfully, you continue to build it very thoughtfully, so congratulations to you, and thank you for having me as a guest today. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was our pleasure. Wish you the most success in Sunflow and as that continues to grow. And we will drop your information at the bottom of the show notes so that people can reach out. But I look forward to being able to hopefully have you back as a guest in the future. And again, thank you for your time. It was a pleasure having you as a culture champion. Oh, yeah. And you asked how to get in touch. Also, my book is available where most books are sold. I think I had sent you a copy, but it's The Culture Quotient. 10 Dimensions of a High-Performance Culture. And people that have read it, I'd love to hear your feedback. So if you do read it, please drop me a note and let me know your thoughts. I thought the book was transformational for me, but from an application standpoint and to provide clarity just because there's so much depth that you provide with having consulted over a thousand organizations that a level of experience put into a practically almost guide that I haven't found another book like it. So that's my testimony, but I'll put a formal one, but the book is absolutely worth picking up. Brandon, nice you could say thank you. And thank you again for having me on today. Have a wonderful summer. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Culture Champions podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
You'll find links to any resources mentioned in the show notes. If you're enjoying our show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. And if you have someone you'd like to hear on the show or a topic you'd like to see covered, please email pat.davisbryant at risktag.com.